We all know that God loves us. That's sort of a given. We know God loves us, but every now and then, we may wonder, what does God really think of me? I know God loves me, but it's sort of like He has to. You know, He's God and all. But what does God really think of me, and does God like me? Sort of like my older brother. I I grew up, he's nine years older than I was, am. That won't change. I knew he loved me. He had to. He was my brother. But I was never sure that he liked me much. But you ought to know that God not only loves you, but his thoughts toward you are wonderful thoughts. What kind of thoughts? Well, God said through Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts for a future, to give you a future and a hope, God said. They were good thoughts. They were redemptive thoughts. They were loving thoughts. Now, how much does God think about you? How often does God think about you when you remind Him, when you pray, and all of a sudden He goes, Oh, yes, you are, and this is about... (laughs) Well, God thinks about you, you might say, incessantly. One of my favorite scriptures that I just wanted to read to you is found in Psalm 139, where David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Then over, after speaking about how he was formed by God in the womb and God knew all about him even then, In verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How much does God think about you? Well, take a handful of sand and count it one day. See how long it takes you. See how many there are in a handful. And then try to figure out how many handfuls are in that area you're standing and how far deep does it go and how wide is it? God's thoughts are innumerable toward you and they're good thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope. There is no better place to see the kindness of God's thoughts toward us than in salvation. The fact that God would forgive us is the ultimate act of kindness. When the disciples came back from a little tour of doing miracles around the Sea of Galilee, they were really excited. They were excited because they could stretch their hand out and cast a demon out of a person and the demon would respond. And Jesus said to them, Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We have heard so long so often that God loves us, has a wonderful plan for our lives, for God so loved the world that a lot of us have lost the ability to be impacted by that grandest of all thoughts, 
God's love is demonstrated for us at the cross. It's the greatest way he demonstrated his love. There's a bumper sticker that I see every now and then. And of course, every time I see things, I like to analyze things. The bumper sticker, I think you've seen it as well, practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Now, I analyze that and I think that is illogical. It's contradictory. You cannot practice anything randomly. They're antithetical thoughts. You don't practice randomness. You practice consistency. And then the next part of that is, and senseless acts of beauty. Beauty is not senseless. Now, I know it's, it's a takeoff on an attitude, but... Contrast that with God's love, which is always consistent, never random, never senseless. It stems from His nature. And we read about it in these verses. Verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable, to men. Kindness, God's kindness, is simply the practical outworking of His thoughts toward you. God manifests in His actions what He is thinking about you on a constant basis. Loving thoughts, thoughts of peace, thoughts of a future and a hope. And again, we can't understate it, salvation, which we read about here, is like the coup de grace. It's like the pinnacle. It's the max of God's love for us, that He saved us. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you happen to be here tonight, I certainly hear unbelievers talk interestingly about salvation. So what is saved? What are you talking about? What's the saved? Saved from what? You Christians talk about being saved. And then they'll say, well, I suppose everybody needs to be saved from some sort of bondage, like narrow thinking. And so I'm saved when I go to my therapist. I'm saved when I go meditate on a crystal. Everybody is saved in that sense. Thus negating the real love of God in salvation. I like what I found and I've shared before. Let a man go to a psychiatrist and he'll become an adjusted sinner. Let a man go to a physician and he'll become a healthy sinner. Let a man achieve wealth and he'll become a wealthy sinner. Let a man join a church, sign a card, turn over a new leaf, and he'll become a religious sinner. Let a man go in sincere repentance and faith to the foot of Calvary's cross and he'll become a forgiven sinner. That's all the difference in the world right there is forgiveness. God's Kindness toward us is demonstrated in that He is willing to forgive us of everything we have ever done. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, looking over the book, we found that you could divide the book up really in two slices. You could divide it a lot of ways, and we've done it. Believe me, we spent 17 weeks doing it. But you could basically divide the book up by looking at it in terms of godly living and godly leaders. He sets out parameters, teachings, instructions for godly leadership, but then for godly living in general. And one of the themes that permeates the book like a ribbon that runs all the way through it is that when God gets a hold of a person, they become a better person. They become good people. God's people should be good people, changed people, full of goodness, good works. Look back at the opening verse of the book. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Down in verse 8, it talks about an elder should be hospitable, a lover of what is good. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, but not given to wine, teachers of good things. Go down to verse 7. Paul tells Timothy himself that in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. And skip down to verse 14. All of God's people are included. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Also in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Then down in verse 8, which we just read. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Now there seems to be, in our reading, a dichotomy. A little bit of a problem, because on one hand... The apostle says, you're not saved by good works, so put out the thought that your good works could have any merit or favor before God. But tell them that they should be careful to maintain good works. That confuses a lot of people, and it shouldn't. And we want to discuss how they fit together tonight, but we want to look at the kindness of God. That's really the theme of this, the kindness of God. And we're going to look at... The kindness of God revealed, and then the kindness of God responded to. Our response is verse 8. The good works aren't to gain favor. They're simply a response to being saved, not by good works. We get so in love with God and so thankful to Jesus. It's not like a kid who's told to pick up his room. Do I have to? But a Christian who's been saved by grace apart from works says, God, what do I get to do today? What would you let me accomplish through your spirit? Do I get to clean up my room, God? Wouldn't that be great if your kids had that attitude, parents? They were so thrilled that their response to your grace, should you decide to show it to them, would be that response of obedience as such. So the first few verses are God's kindness revealed, and then verse 8 is God's kindness responded to. Personalize this, shall we, as we go through it? We know the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. That's what brought us to Him, His love. 
It's His kindness. Then we should take His kindness and demonstrate it to others. We've received it. And sort of the broad context here is, God has been very kind to you. You should not only respond to it by maintaining good works, but if you go all the way back to the first verse of the third chapter, the idea is that we should be loving and kind toward unbelievers because God has been kind to us. I found a story I wanted to read with you, or to you. You don't have a copy of it, so we can't read it together. Let me read it to you. It's by Dr. Ken Hanna. He said, If you had seen Arthur when he stepped off the bus in Kingston, Ontario, you would have never been able to guess his past. He would blend into the background and be like any traveling salesman or perhaps a grandfather coming to visit his family. However, Arthur's vital statistics were anything but average. He was released from prison at the age of 53, and yet incredibly he had spent 42 years behind bars. He began his prison career at age 11. No prison seemed capable of holding him. No prison system seemed capable of breaking his spirit or reforming his behavior. He served 24 of those solitary years, or excuse me, those years in solitary confinement. 17 months he sat on death row. He participated in prison riots. He broke a guard's arm, another guard's collarbone, and brought about the death of one sheriff. In one prison in Indiana, he stole 40 pounds of cyanide while working in the prison with the idea of poisoning the entire prison staff. He spent 31 months in Devil's Island prison, confined to a 5 by 7 foot cell chained by his neck. Society had no hope for him. They just tried their best to confine him. But something happened in Arthur's life to dramatically change all of that. It began one day in Leavenworth, Kansas, while in prison. A preacher came to visit in the prison and brought along his 14-year-old son, Timmy. As Timmy followed his dad down the row of cells, he, for some reason, paused by Arthur's cell, smiled, and winked. That's all it took. Arthur responded, called him back to the cell, and began to verbally abuse him, to curse, to swear, to call him everything he could think of. The boy broke down in tears, but he stood his ground. Finally, he simply said these words to Arthur, I love you. Arthur said later, that was the first time in all of my life that somebody said, I love you. Arthur began to receive letters from Timmy. Timmy would write to him and share his concern. Timmy prayed for him. For seven years, those letters kept coming, and correspondence began to be exchanged between them until Arthur finally broke down and said, Every letter was stained with his tears. I couldn't take it anymore. I got on my knees and I came to the Lord. God did two miracles in the life of Arthur. The first was to transform a hate-filled, violent man into a man of love and grace with the ability to care for others. Then God did a double miracle because he saw fit to have him released from prison in spite of that kind of a background and record. Though he had cancer, he set about proclaiming Christ with the years that he had left. There's a man so hardened but so touched by the kindness of God to the life of a little guy who stained letters with his own tears. 
Let's first of all look at this revelation of God's kindness in verses 4 through 7. Looking over them again. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Do you remember that night or day? When you finally gave your life to Christ, seeing the kindness and love of God? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He talks about, first of all, the means that this kindness came to us, how it came. And he does so negatively and positively. He said, this is how God was kind to you. It came through the agency and the means, not of your works, but it came through the agency of God's mercy and grace. That's his theme in those verses. First of all, not by works of righteousness. I found something about people. I bet you found it too. And I bet some of you have even struggled with it. Man seems incurably addicted to performance to working for something, to, to trying to make the other party feel like, well, I deserve what you've done for me, this act of kindness. And we carry that over into our relationship with God. That somehow we can feel like, well, I deserve God's kindness. to me. I've been a good person. I'm a wonderful person. Really? Ask your husband or wife, your sons, your daughters, your parents, those closest to you all about how wonderful you are. But somehow we still think that we should relate through works. And that we should relate to God in salvation through works. We've got to work our way. What a waste! Principally because the Bible says salvation is a free what? Gift. Would you be insulted if you gave somebody a gift for Christmas and they said, Mom, thank you. Listen, I'll work really hard the next four months to pay this off. Say, don't insult me, all right? It's a gift. It's free. You don't earn it. Freely given. There was in the 4th century, and if you were in our school of ministry, you should remember the Pelagian heresy. The whole idea is that we can work our way toward God by works and secure our own salvation. And of course, that's what the Reformation from the 16th century was all about. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, apart from the deeds of the law. That's what Paul is saying. God was kind to you. And the means that he was kind to you was not through your own goodness. There's a story of a guy who went to a tent revival meeting. He got there late. When he got to the meeting, the tent was already broken down. They were putting the poles away, rolling up the canvas. This man, frantic, said, I I need to see the evangelist. But he was gone. So he talked to one of the workers and he said, What do I have to do to get saved? One of the workers, being a Christian, said, it's too late. So what do you mean it's too late? He said, it's too late. It's already been accomplished for you. All you have to do is believe it and receive the work that's been done. Then he got the message. First he thought, oh no, it's too late. You know, it's like office hours closed. (laughs) But the idea is that God did the work for you, and you must believe and receive His works. Remember, they came to Jesus one time and said, What must we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, I'll tell you, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He hath sent. That is the work of God. So it's not by church membership, it's not by baptism, it's not signing a card or being confirmed or having a nice ritual. 
It is by not your works, but by grace and by mercy, God's righteousness. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness. Nothing can save a man but the righteousness of Christ. I was like the man in a bog. The more he struggles, the more he sinks. Or like a prisoner upon the treadmill who rises no higher, but only wearies himself by his climbing. No good can result in efforts made apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Now, suppose your salvation depended upon your works. How would you feel about that? Well, it all depends, doesn't it? Depends what kind of a day you're having. If you're having a good day and you happen to be particularly inclined to God and having nice feelings about God and about yourself that you perform pretty well, it's okay. Well, I'm doing all right today. But what about all those other days? Like most of the days. You would be like the modern Jew on Yom Kippur, hoping that since there's no temple and sacrifice for atonement, your good deeds have somehow balanced out your evil deeds through the year, and you're just hoping that your good deeds will make you acceptable to God. Of course, you'd have to walk that whole day forgetting the scripture that says all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. You'd have to just forget that that exists. But you'd live in trepidation, in fear. It'd be a sad, sad place. David said, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Also, I've thought of this. If we could get to heaven by our works, can you imagine how boring heaven would be? Everybody would be bragging. <laughs> you ever thought of that? That's why Paul said in Ephesians, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Heaven would be a bore as people are getting up. Let's toast to me. I'll tell you how I got here. I built that wing of that hospital. Somebody else ends up, well, I memorized more Bible verses than anybody, and I read ten chapters a day. How boring. I'll tell you what heaven's going to be like. We're all going to say, um, it's just God's grace that got me here. That man over there with all the wounds on him named Jesus, that's how I got here. Not by my works, but by his finished work upon the cross. Then he goes in this verse into our means of God's kindness in the positive way, and he uses two words. First, he says, it's not by your works, but there's two words, mercy and grace. Mercy is found in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Then down in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word mercy is a Greek word, eleos, and it means pity, to have compassion upon someone, to take pity especially if you can help that person who is helpless. The word mercy assumes two things. Need, number one. Resources, number two. The word necessitates those two things. To show mercy, there must be need. That's us. We need it. And there must be resources. That's where God can pull it off. Because Ephesians says, God who is rich in mercy... And so the idea is someone who has the resources sees someone else who is hopeless and can't help himself or herself out of that bog. Having the resources and seeing the need, you have those feelings of pity and compassion. That's what mercy means. It'd be like a child finding that bird's nest. 
bringing it home in the afternoon after school. Oh, you don't need a bird's nest in the house, you think. But a child has such pity and compassion. There's a helpless bird. Let's help it. Let's put a Band-Aid on its leg and wing and we'll patch it up. It's the same feeling you get when you turn on the television set and you see all about the children in war-torn countries and maybe a plea of how you could help them for so much a month. And you see the need and you say, it's hopeless unless I help them. It's the feeling Jesus got when he saw the whole multitude and he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep having no shepherd. That's pity. That's compassionate mercy, Elias. There was a woman, it said, who came to Napoleon because her son was in prison and she was pleading for the life of her son. And Napoleon said, listen, your son has committed the same crime twice and justice deserves the death penalty. She said, sire, I'm not asking for justice. I want mercy. He said, he doesn't deserve it. I said, well, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. I'm not asking you to give him what he deserves. Withhold what he deserves. And let me have my son. He saw her reasoning. said, fine, you asked for mercy. I'll give you mercy and gave her a son back. Then the next word is grace in verse 7. Charis, it's a classical term. It's all throughout the Bible. We hear it so often, and we often take it for granted. In classical Greek, it is the kindness of a master or a superior to somebody who was inferior, like one of his servants in his household, where he would go out of his way to lavish some kindness, some kind act upon an inferior or a servant. It says in that verse, we have been justified, justified by grace. That's an important term as well. Justified means that God says something about you. He declares something about you judicially. You may not feel it. You still may feel guilty. You might feel undeserving. You still may try to do it through works. But God makes a declaration when you bank upon His grace, and the term is justification. It means to declare a person righteous. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean to make a person righteous. It means that God declares positionally you are righteous. You still may act like a creep afterwards. You may not be thankful afterwards, though you should be. You may not be perfect. In fact, you won't be perfect afterwards. There will still be sin in your life. But God declares that you are righteous. He makes that proclamation that you are righteous. In fact, in uh, the secular Greek usage, justification, get this, was used of a tyrant king who was trying to justify his own outrageous acts. Now that's secular Greek. In the Bible, it's of a righteous king who justifies our outrageous acts. He declares you righteous. So it's sort of like, as you've heard the analogy, a courtroom scene. You are on trial. Not O.J., you. And the evidence is stacked up. And they've got the glove. And they've got the videotape. And they've got all the DNA material. And Satan, of course, is with some of the others, Moses and the rest, showing how you've broken the law. And the devil pulls out boxes, trunkfuls, semi-loadfuls of scrolls of all your offenses. And he brings, you know, it takes weeks just to unroll those scrolls. And, you know, the judge is tired of it. And it's like, 
That's enough. Oh, no, no, no. I have much more evidence against this guy. Listen, it's, there's street loads full of this outside. It's still coming in. And you're there, and you know, I'm sunk. The judge says, how do you plead? You say, I'm guilty. I've done all those things and more. Before the gavel goes down, you've got a great attorney. Jesus steps up. And he goes up to the bar, leans over, puts his arm on the judge, says, Dad, listen. All those things about that person is true, but as you and I both know, I paid the penalty for everything he's done. I gave myself for him. The punishment that he deserves, I've taken. And you must declare him righteous. There's no hesitation. Gavel goes down. You're acquitted. Case dismissed. Next. God declares you righteous because you don't say, Your Honor, I have a few good works I'd like to tell you about. I remember when I was six, I smiled at an old lady and I helped her across the street. Then, when I was seven, you're going to run out of things really quick. If you try to stack them against what's against you. And so you say, no, not by my works. But the means that you have shown your kindness is by your mercy and grace. And you declare me righteous. It's more than being pardoned. To be justified means that God says, I am going to treat you as if you have never done it. I am going to act toward you as if you have never committed those sins. It's a declaration of God. Then in verse 6, It centers on Jesus himself. This is the man through whom this kindness comes, whom he poured out, that is his lavish mercy, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's mercy and God's grace were displayed when Jesus hung on that cross. And in that terrible moment of history, the cross of Jesus Christ became like the ultimate eraser, the ultimate sponge to soak up every sin of a person who would give their lives to that Savior. Just sops them and takes them away. And at the cross, God lavishly poured out His mercy. That's why in Ephesians it says, Not by works, lest anyone should boast. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, I fear that we've heard that scripture so many times. It's lost its punch. But think about it. I wouldn't give my son for someone who hated me. Someone said, the only way for this person who's been trying to hurt you all of your life and was against you, your enemy, is to sacrifice Nathan. I'd say, forget it. No. I'm not going to give my son for that person. I heard, I read a story of how they did experimentations. Taking the heart of a baboon and transplanting it in the heart of a child because of the way it would grow and it would be about the same growth rate and be a successful operation. You read stories like that with great admiration, but reverse it. Would you take the heart of your child to save a baboon? But God did. God took His Son to save baboons like us. And if you really know who you are, you have no problem with that statement. (laughs) If you're still trying to relate to God by your works, you probably have a lot of problems with that statement. It's not by our works, 
But the means by which God shows his kindness is through grace and mercy. The man that is the ultimate display of that is Jesus Christ who hung upon the cross. And then finally, the magnitude of God's kindness is in verse 7. Having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's hope after this life. It's been said that you can live 40 days without food, three days without water. I don't know how many minutes without air, but you can't live a second without hope. The thing about the Christian life that separates us from everyone else and other isms is the hope that you have beyond this life. That's why Paul said, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Think about that statement for just a moment. If our hope is tied to just this life, and Jesus promised abundant life, we're miserable. You say, why do you say that? Because think of all the suffering that people like missionaries have gone through who would say, I will risk my life. I'll get diseases if need be. I'll give my life and pour it out for God in a foreign mission field. Wow, why would you do that? Because I believe in heaven, that's why. I believe there's something beyond this life and more important than this life. Think of all the Christians that have suffered persecution the first several centuries of Christianity and still today in parts of the world. If they suffered all of that and death ends it all, they are miserable people. But they're living for a country that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so that's the hope that he is speaking about. A living hope that he called it. You know, I think that looking at verse 7 and knowing my own experience, probably many of yours, when you ask Jesus to be your Savior, a seed gets planted in your heart. A seed of heaven. Whereas the longer you live the Christian life, you get kind of homesick. And you see Christians with sort of an odd view of even death. I've seen people on their deathbed with smiles on their faces. Hey man, I'm going home soon. Get an unbeliever in that room and have them explain what they see and hear. They're dumbfounded. Well, that's so macabre. It's called hope. It outstrips and outlasts this life. And as the Christian lives, that hope of eternity is placed in the heart to where the more you walk in this life, the older you get especially, you think, and someday I'm going to see his face. And like Moses, you think, Lord, show me your glory. And so God's kindness is revealed. The means of it, not by our works, but by God's grace and God's mercy. The man through whom it is shown, Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God. And then finally here in verse 7, the magnitude of it, that we have a hope that outlasts this life. And again, this makes all the difference. And this separates the believer from the unbeliever. The unbelievers have a hopeless end. The believer has an endless hope. Then in verse 8, and this is really where the shift begins, is the response to God's kindness. The first few verses, he talks about the revelation of God's kindness, now the response to God's kindness. This is a faithful saying. Anytime it says that, pay attention. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, we know that works don't save us, but we do know that good works 
are part of salvation. They're the proof of the pudding. They are the demonstration that we have been saved. And I think that you have probably read the Bible enough to know that that is a consistent theme in almost every New Testament book. This is what God has done apart from your works is a theme of so many of Paul's epistles. This is what God has given to you. This is what God will do for you. Then there's a break in the book where it says, Therefore, brethren, seeing that God has done all this, now you need to respond to that kindness and that grace. So in Ephesians 10, it says, For we are His workmanship. And he says this right after saying that we haven't been saved by works, but through faith. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John 15, 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. Good works don't produce discipleship, but they prove discipleship. How else would you know? Isn't that what Jesus meant in the simple statement? You will know them by their fruit and by their works that he was talking about. What if a television crew followed you around? Let's say they came here to church. And they have the light on you and they have the video rolling and there's the gal or the guy with the microphone, the spokesperson who puts the microphone up to your mouth and says, we've come here and we're live from this church and we're interviewing so-and-so. And Tell us, how do you know you're a Christian and how can we know it? Prove it to us. What would you say? Well, look, here I am. I'm in a church. Or would you say, well, I've always been a Christian. You see, I was born in a Christian home. And I have a Bible. And look, it's even underlined. In yellow. Or would you say, oh, I can, I can prove it. Look, I'm wearing a cross. There's a fish bumper sticker on my car. And I listen to Christian radio. Go turn on the car. That proves that I'm a Christian. It's a lot more than that, isn't it? And throughout the scripture, it talks about the response to God by a child of God is obedience to God. Not obedience to a tyrant, but that loving response of, what do I get to do today, God? So we should be careful to maintain good works. Imagine it in the tennis realm. Would you say a person is a tennis player if he had a book on how to play tennis? And he underlined it and memorized sections of it and could quote and give nice little talks about how to serve, how to do backhand, and talk all about sports equipment and he could show you his equipment. You would say, I want to see you play tennis, pal. You might have the book down, you might have the lingo down, but you're not a tennis player till you're out on the court. The book doesn't prove it. The theology of tennis doesn't prove it. You're not saved by the works, but it proves that God has done work in you. That's what James meant when he said, faith without works is dead. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you will feel warm and tingly all over (laughs) and have positive thoughts. If you love me, you will do what I say, basically. Not if you love me, you will become a theologian. 
If you love me, you will amass great volumes of knowledge about the Bible. If you love me, basically you will keep my commandments. Um, We have just enough time to close with this. Turn to Luke chapter 6 for just a moment. This is the balance. God's kindness revealed, God's kindness responded to. It's throughout the Bible. In the words of Jesus himself now in Luke chapter 6. Keep in mind Jesus is addressing not atheists here, not pagans. Let's look beginning in verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house, and it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. He's had the right words, didn't he? He had the right doctrine. Lord, Lord. It's not whether you hear the right teaching. It's not, well, you know, I go to a Bible teaching church. Then you're more responsible. And I am more responsible as a teacher of it than even those who hear it. We traffic in the most priceless commodity of anything, anywhere. The treasure of the Word of God, the truth of God. To hear it, but not to do it. It's like a man who builds a great looking house. Oh, it's beautiful, but it doesn't last. In judgment time, it falls eternally. A person who hears and does builds for eternity, and it is secure. So it's great to have your feet on the ground theologically and have all the right lingo down like we have here. But unless your feet move one in front of the other, you don't have a walk. You just have a talk. And that's the idea here. And so, summing it up, the kindness of God. God not only loves you, He likes you. He has thoughts of peace toward you, thoughts of a future and a hope. God's kindness moves you to repentance. The means of God's kindness is not by your works, but God's grace based on His character, His mercy withholding judgment. The man is Jesus Christ, the ultimate demonstration. The magnitude of God's kindness will be all of eternity. He will demonstrate His love and kindness towards you. The response is that you and I maintain good works. Not like, okay, well now I'm going to... I'm going to go and I'm really going to just maintain good works. I'm going to write five good works down and I'm going to do them. No. It's natural. If you are walking with Jesus Christ, you've got them. So what's the secret? Get closer to Him. It's in relationship. Did you know that? Remember Jesus said it this way, If you abide in me, you'll bear forth much fruit. And He compared it to a branch and a vine. Now think of a tree for a moment bearing fruit. Have you ever seen an apple struggle? Sweat. You ever seen an apple hanging over there going, "Ah!" Boom! Then it pops out, apple. How does it turn into an apple? It just hangs in there. Hang in there with Jesus. 
Hang in there, meaning stay close to Him. Maintain that intimate relationship with Him. Have quiet time with Him. Talk to Him through the day. Sing songs to Him. Memorize His Word. Apply His Word. Ask Him for help. Let it be the consistency of your life. As you hang in there, you will have so much fruit all over the place. It's not a struggle. You don't have to strive to work. You abide to work. The kindness of God to you. I read a story of a, of, of a British guy who was after a gal for about 20 years. Finally, at the age of 74, they got married. What happened is every day he would put a love note under her door and she would throw it away. For 20 years, because they had this argument some years back, and she wouldn't forgive him. And he wrote 2,180 love letters. And he was very shy. He'd slip them under the door and run. You can see with a gal like that, why? Finally, he had enough guts to knock on the door and ask for her hand in marriage, and she accepted. How many tries... How many times has God been knocking at the door of your heart? How many times has God tried to be kind to you? And you throw the note away. How many scripture verses have you heard? How many tracts have you read? How many sermons have you listened to? Please from friends, you throw them away. God is asking for your hand in a relationship. He wants to be kind to you. And you don't deserve it. And I don't deserve it. And that's what makes us perfect for this covenant. Because mercy presupposes need and resources. We have the need. He's ready and willing and able with those resources. And so, Father, we marvel at your kindness, your grace, your mercy, and how you can with that declare us just as if we'd never sinned. Righteous. You declare us that. And then you treat us that way because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so far be it from us to rely upon some good deed or some confirmation or some baptism or some thing we did. It's your work. Lord, I pray that we would let you be kind to us and lavish abundantly your mercy upon us. Instead of hiding out in the fringes saying, but I don't deserve it. And so I'll punish myself the rest of my life by not entering it. Oh, Lord, save us from that pride and bring us to a place of surrender. And as you're meditating upon your own life and these promises, perhaps you'd come here tonight and you need to surrender yourself to the grace and mercy of God. You need to be a recipient. You need to be forgiven. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. We see people make the commitment at almost every service. If you've come here tonight and you are ready to let God be kind to you by saving you, and you're ready to admit tonight, I'm a sinner and I can't make it on my own and I want Jesus to forgive me and give me everlasting life, would you raise your hand up right now? And I'll pray for you as we close this service. Raise it up high and do it now. God bless you and you and you right over here. Right over here. Anyone else? Raise it up so I can see it. Right on. 
God bless you. Your hands in the back, I see, or in the middle, I see you. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful. We're so thankful, and we still marvel at the greatest miracle of all. What we're seeing right now before our eyes, in our presence, taking lives and changing them, forgiving every sin, washing it away, and giving us forgiveness and everlasting life because of what Jesus did on the cross. May we never tire of hearing and seeing that tremendous work. And we pray for these who have raised their hands in this auditorium. We pray, Father, that they would be able to walk in that forgiveness. They would experience your kindness. We pray, Father, that they wouldn't carry around a load of guilt any longer. But as they make Jesus their Lord and Savior, they would feel that burden leave and the guilt be alleviated. We pray, Father, you'd fill them with your spirit, that you'd give them direction. We pray, Lord, that you would root them firmly in you, and I pray that they would continue that abiding relationship of staying close to their Savior, and that their lives would be fruitful, and you'd use them for your glory. And if you raise your hand tonight, many of you did in this auditorium, I want you to pray right now where you're sitting. Pray out loud after me, or you can pray underneath your breath, but it's better if you just... Make the commitment public, even with the people around you. Wherever you're seated, just say, God, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on that cross for me. Change me completely and then use me for your glory and honor. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.